Okay, we're continuing our study in the Sermon on the Mount today, and we are in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 7. Second to last sermon that we're going to be doing uh, in this little series. Matthew, chapter 7. Jesus has talked, he's introduced prayer in chapter 6 and told us how to pray. He comes back around really to the concept of prayer here and tells us not what words to use, but really what attitude to use in praying. So we're on Ma- in Matthew 7, starting in verse 7. We'll be given- Listen now to God's word. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives, and the one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray for us. Father, we're thankful for your word this morning. We do ask, like you have told us to, that you would be at work as you have promised to be, that you would soften our hearts and open our eyes, unstop our ears, that we might come in contact with your word and in doing so might be changed. Send us out here different than we came in. By the power of your spirit, we pray this, and in the name of your son, amen. Well, you have probably uh, seen you know, this kind of, there's, there's a, just a trope, you know, that's used in TV and film, and, and, and you've seen it if you've ever seen a TV show or, or film, you know, this kind of uh, scene where, you know, one person, you know, they're coming up and there's a bomb and everybody's trying to defuse the bomb, right? And it's, you know, it's going to end the world and it's going to be terrible and there's, you know, 12 seconds left. And one guy, you know, who's been there the whole time kind of pulls out of his pocket, uh, you know, the code to defuse the bomb. And somebody else says, you've had the code to defuse the bomb this whole time? Why didn't you tell us? And he says, you didn't ask, right? You didn't ask. It's kind of just a a regular little trick they throw into lots of stories. But it's also an interesting thing, I think, that we deal with all the time. Why don't we ask for the things that we need? One commentator says, when, when you read these words of Jesus, and when you read them with simple faith, it's almost mind blowing, isn't it? It bowls you over with the kind of promises that Jesus makes here. Ask and you will receive. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened. So why don't we ask more? Why don't we seek more? Why don't we knock more? Maybe it's because uh, we don't really know if we're going to like the answer. Maybe it's because we don't know if we're going to like what the answer means. Maybe it's because we're full of shame and guilt and we just don't want to come and ask and talk. What we're going to look at today is actually, I think, three reasons why we typically don't follow what Jesus says here. Why we don't ask, why we don't seek, why we don't knock. And those are this, is that we don't fully understand the character of God. That's first. Secondly, that we don't understand our relationship to him as Christians And then finally, that we don't understand his good gifts 
the idea of even what these good gifts are. So we're going to look at those three things this morning. Let's first look at the character of God. We don't understand God's character. What is it about God's character that actually frees us to do these things that Jesus says? To ask and to seek and to, to knock. The first, I think, is, is that God, in his character, it is to respond. God actually loves to respond. It's why he tells us to ask and to seek and to knock is because he loves to respond. There's a parallel passage or similar passage in Luke chapter 11. And just very briefly, if you're reading through the Gospels and sometimes you're confused about Jesus actually saying the same thing or maybe saying something almost in the same way but a little bit differently, Oftentimes throughout the Gospels, you'll either find Jesus saying the same thing and a different occasion, or you'll find just a different perspective from the other writer of what Jesus is saying in the same occasion. For whatever that is, in Luke 11, we get actually some similar language, but it's interesting in Luke 11 the way that Luke lays it out for us because it starts with Jesus praying. And in Luke 11, Jesus is praying, and he's kind of off by himself praying, but his disciples are there watching And then when he finishes, they say, Lord, teach us to pray. We want to pray like you. We see you doing it. Will you teach us how to pray? And in Luke, that's actually where Jesus launches into the Lord's Prayer. And he says, okay, great. I'll teach you how to pray. Pray like this. And he tells them how to pray. And then right after he tells them how to pray, he gives them a story that's fascinating. And the story goes something like this. He says, imagine you're you're a person... Of course, this is, you know, first century Near East. Imagine you're a person and a friend of yours actually is coming into town and he comes in as a surprise and you don't know he's coming. And remember, at this time, in this place, hospitality is a big deal, right? So it's a big deal for you to have things ready for somebody to come and just spring themselves on you. You need to have food for them. You need to have a place for them to stay. And so he says, imagine that your friend comes into town and you weren't expecting him and it's a surprise to you. What are you going to do? Well, you'll probably go over to your neighbor's house, your other friend, and you're going to say, hey, I just had a friend, a surprise visitor come in. I need some food. Will you give me some bread so I can feed this guy who's been traveling and he's hungry so that I can actually not look like an idiot for not having anything to give him? But then Jesus kind of steps it up a notch and he says, okay, imagine that scenario. And now imagine that scenario in the middle of the night when everybody is calm, when things are supposed to be good. Uh, at my parents' house, my, my dad and my stepmom, they have, they have multiple dogs. Uh, any more than one dog is multiple dogs, by the way, and it's too many dogs for me. But they have lots of dogs. And uh, their dogs, you know, if you've ever been, you know, in a house where there are lots of dogs, you, one dog barks, and then what happens to all the other dogs? They respond, right? And so within a matter of, you know, milliseconds, all of the dogs are barking. So if anybody comes to the door or if it's a stranger or if, you know, you go outside and then, you know, five seconds later come inside, the dogs are on high alert. You know, what happened? You just, we just saw you five seconds ago, but we don't know what to do with you, so they start barking. And it's just, it's just crazy. It's loud, and it's all, I, I think I know anytime somebody comes over to my parents' house, and they live in Austin, because I can hear their dogs barking even then. So imagine that, and now imagine you're in uh, the first century, you know, in Israel, and it's probably a one-room house, and you're a young family, and you've just kind of gotten everything settled in. 
and you're in bed, and you've got your children kind of nestled into bed with you, and uh, everybody's in there. There's probably some animals also in the room inside the house with you, and the baby has just just been fed and just gone down for a nap, and the the seven-year-old finally who never wants to go to sleep is finally dozed off, and everything is peaceful, and everything is nice, and the animals are settled in, and everybody's finally going to get some sleep. And then, boom, 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 knock on the door, and it's your neighbor, and he wants you to get up and give him some bread so he can help a friend. Now, imagine how you would respond to that. If you're anything like me, you would respond pretty poorly. But what's fascinating here is that in Luke, right after Luke tells that story, he launches into this description. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened. And his point, Jesus' point is that God's character is not like your character. Because God loves to respond. He loves to open the door when we knock. And the more that we do it, and the more annoying we think we are, the more his heart is moved toward us, not away from us. He says, come and ask me. It doesn't matter if it's in the middle of the night. It doesn't matter if it's a totally stupid question. It doesn't matter if you are the one who messed it up and we need to talk about it. It doesn't matter if it's your fault anyway. Come and talk to me. He loves it when we draw near to him in prayer. He loves to respond to us. Furthermore, God does not just love to respond to us. He actually loves to invite us. You heard this actually in our call to worship this morning from from, uh, Isaiah 55, but I'm going to read it to you again. Listen to how God talks to his people through the prophet Isaiah. He says, come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come and buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligent to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. If you've been studying in your small group uh, the book Gentle and Lowly, you know that in Matthew 11, Jesus reveals his heart. He says, he actually gives a description of who he is. And he says, I am gentle and humble at heart, gentle and lowly in heart. And right before he does that, do you remember what he says? Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. Come to me. Our God loves to invite us. He is moving toward us continually, and he is inviting us in. It is his nature, it is his character to invite. And furthermore, it's his nature and his character to answer when we call. We live in a neighborhood, this neighborhood, that is, uh, there's usually some work being done on somebody's house. Because the neighborhood is older, it's right around that time where people are starting to remodel their houses or Young couples are moving into an older house and they're having it redone. So there's always somebody in our neighborhood putting on a roof or putting in new windows, which means there's always somebody in our neighborhood trying to get us to buy a new roof or buy new windows. And I, we, just, we must have a sign in our yard that just, just says, ask me about my windows because I want to talk about that. Uh, people drive by us and they think like jackpot that's the people we should go talk to. And so, you know, we get them all the time. And, you know, 
it's not their fault. I think they're all trained by this one person who's the least socially aware person in the planet who trains them, you know, like this, like, hey, if you, if you walk up to somebody's house and you can see in the window that they're hard at work, what you should do is you should start talking to them through the window and asking them if they want to buy something or if they open the door and they're clearly on the telephone, ignore the fact that they're on the phone and just start talking to them anyway. Or, you know, if you've been there already five times, and they've already told you five times they don't want new windows, don't worry about that. Forget about all of those other times and talk to them anyway. I don't, they must be trained by that same person. Because every time I see somebody walking in our neighborhood carrying a clipboard, I mean, I close all of the blinds and <laughs> like I want to run to the back of my house and like start the shower just so that I'd have an excuse not to open the door when they knock. But of course, Jesus is telling us that God's character is not like my character. God's character is much more like when my children come home from college and they pull up into the driveway and I don't even have to wait for them to knock because I'm already in the middle of the driveway ready to meet them and give them a big hug because I'm so happy they're there. Friends, that is God's character. He loves to answer the door when we knock. He loves to respond to us. He loves to invite us. He loves to welcome us. He wants us to come and draw near to him in prayer. He wants us to ask. He is not put off and annoyed by our asking. It actually increases his desire and love for us. So there's the first thing we need to understand. The first reason I think that we are prone not to ask and seek and knock is because we don't understand the character of God. We think his character is like our character, but it's not. It's completely different. Second thing is, I think if you're a Christian, at least, and I don't want to assume that everybody in here is a Christian, but if you're a Christian, this actually, your relationship with God is something that has a huge import on how we interact with God. And I think one of the reasons we don't ask and we don't seek and we don't knock is because we forget our relationship with him. You know, I don't know if you've ever, uh, you know, had to ask for a raise in your life or if you remember asking somebody out on a date or if you've ever had to ask your friend for something difficult. Maybe you've had to sit down and talk to a friend and say, hey, um, you know, I call you all the time and you never call me and that hurts my feelings. That, those are hard conversations, aren't they? It's hard to ask for something that you want. It's hard to ask for something that actually puts you at risk. And I think the reason is not that necessarily we, we don't think we'll like the answer, but it's that we don't know if we're going to like what the answer says about us. Because if I ask for a raise and you say, I can't give you a raise right now, well, then what does that mean about my own worth, my value? Does that mean I'm, I'm not worthy of being paid more? If I ask you to go out and you say, I can't go out on Saturday night, what does that mean about me? Does that mean that I am actually of less value and of less worth, that, that I'm not somebody who's worth going out with? What does it mean for me to ask my friend to call me more? There's the risk, right, that they may just end up saying, I just really don't like you all that much. That's why I never call you. So what's behind the answer is actually scarier than the answer itself, isn't it? But what if we understand what's behind the answer already. Martin Luther, 
who was, you know, started the Protestant Reformation, was a, was a Catholic monk, and he said, you know, in the monastery, I never asked for anything. I never asked for anything with the, for the Lord in prayer. He said, but when I finally understood the gospel, it totally changed my prayer life. Why is that? Well, three things really quickly, I think. Three, three really essential doctrines that matter for how we interact with God in prayer. And the first is this. It's the doctrine of adoption. This is the Bible's way of telling us, by way of an illustration that we can understand, that we belong to God. The doctrine of adoption says that we are not outsiders anymore. When we become Christians, we become insiders. We are brought in, adopted into God's family. It's, 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 it's the, the language of family law, that in a Greek household, there might be slaves and slave children that live within that household, and they're there and they live in the same house, but they are clearly not insiders. They are outsiders. And adoption in Greek society was actually the legal way of taking that child and having him become part of your family. And the name changed, and the future changed, and the inheritance changed. Because now I'm in. I don't stand out on the outside of the door knocking and saying, hey, can I please come in? I'm in. I'm sitting at the family table. I'm eating from the family's food. When my kids go to somebody else's house and they eat dinner with them, they don't ask them for money afterwards. That would be ridiculous, but they don't have any problem asking me for money. And the reason is they're insiders. They know I'm their dad. It's different because they're part of the family. And friends, when we are secure as part of God's family, we are free to ask, aren't we? It changes the way that we interact with him. We don't interact out of insecurity. We interact out of security. So there's adoption. Second is this, the doctrine of justification. If adoption is the language of family law, then justification is really the language of criminal law. It's the idea that I stand here before the judge and I know that I'm guilty. But that judge declares me to not only be not guilty, but righteous even. It is the act of God's grace in which he cleanses us of our sin and declares us righteous because of what Jesus has done for us. We stand now before the judge, if you are a Christian, as one who has been proclaimed, not only cleansed of sin, but actually given the righteousness of God. So we stand completely secure in that courtroom as those who now not only have no record of wrong, but have a perfect record of righteousness. Now, if that's us, doesn't that change the way that we interact with God in prayer? Doesn't that change the way that we feel securely with him? Instead of manipulating and, and, and trying to kind of, you know, be real cagey about the way that we ask and trying to figure out how to get what we want out of it because we're afraid that we might get condemned, we actually come confidently asking God, standing already in his good graces because of what Jesus, Jesus has done for us. And then the third thing is the doctrine of sanctification. So if justification is the act of God declaring us righteous, Sanctification is the process of God actually making us more righteous, making us more and more like Jesus over the course of our lives. It just means that God is at work in you. If you belong to Jesus, God is currently actively at work in you. He is shaping your desires to be more like his desires. He is shaping your heart to look more like his heart. So, 
when you ask God, we don't have to be as afraid of, gosh, I don't know, am I asking, am I asking with the right motives? Those are good questions to ask. It's always helpful to do some introspection. But the fact that God is at work in you means that we can have the freedom to come and approach him in prayer, knowing that he actually wants us to talk to him because he's actually actively at work in us. Those things change us, don't they? The relationship that we have with God changes the way that we interact with God. It changes the way that we ask. It changes the way that we seek. It changes the way that we knock. Here's the third thing. Not only do we not understand God's character and forget our relationship, but we also misunderstand the nature of his gifts, of his good gifts. This is, I think, probably one of the hardest things about this passage is that maybe some of us have said, you know what, um, I've done that, right? I've asked, and I've asked a lot, and it hasn't happened. And what I've asked for hasn't come to pass. So what do I do with that? What do I do when I pray and I ask for something and God doesn't give it to me? Well, I think there's actually something really important about even the words that Jesus uses here. He uses this phrase a couple of times, good gifts. And he uses it in connection to another story he tells, an illustration that he gives them. It's an illustration with a rhetorical technique Jesus uses, uses called, a, you know, comparing going from lesser to greater. All right, so if I said, um, man, you think the traffic is bad at Creekside, wait till you sit in traffic in Los Angeles, right? I'm comparing from the lesser to the greater to make the greater seem even greater based on what I know. And this is what Jesus does when he compares the love of the Father to the love of everyday human fathers. He says, listen, if you are a father and you, and you love your children, you know, you would never do something foolish like this. Your child came and said, man, Dad, I'm so hungry. And instead of giving them a piece of bread, you gave them a stone to eat? Of course you wouldn't do that. You're a loving father. You would never want to harm your child that way. And if your child came to you and said, gosh, Dad, I'm so hungry, you know, instead of giving them a fish to eat, you gave them a snake that might bite them and hurt them? Of course not. You would never do that. You love your child. You would not want to do something that harmed them. And then Jesus says this. He says, if you even know how to give good gifts to your children, and you're sinful, and you're broken, and you don't love perfectly, how much more so does your Father in heaven who is perfect and holy and loves you perfectly, how much more so will he give you good gifts? But the problem, I think, for us is, is that we don't always know what good is, do we? We don't always have a firm grasp on what's good for us. I love the way that one commentator states this. This is a guy, he's a Roman Catholic scholar. His name is Erasmo Leva Maricacus. How great is that name? Uh, but actually, he's, he is, uh, this is a side note, um, he's translated the work of another theologian whose name is Hans Urs von Balthasar. Hans Urs von Balthasar and Erasmo Leva Maricacus. I mean, like, the top two drafts on the all-name team. It's pretty amazing. But he has some beautiful things to say here about this passage. Listen, listen to what he says. If God is good, why does he make us wait? Why would he make his children go hungry when they are at their rope's end? Well, a careful reading of this passage indicates that the flaw is with us, the askers, not with God, the giver. 
If the good father does not give his child a stone when he asks him for a loaf of bread or a snake when he asks him for a fish, what does the father do when the child demands a stone and a snake for his nourishment and will have nothing else? The good father will allow the child to go hungry, perhaps even to approach starvation before witnessing the grotesqueness of a stone diet or a bite from a poisonous snake inflicted by his demented child on himself. Because where the Father dwells, there is no store of evil. God is utterly poor in evil things. He has none to give, no matter how insistently we demand them of him. You hear what he's saying? Is that we don't always know what's good. And when we keep asking God for something that he knows is not good, he's not going to give it to us because he is good. It's like if your child came and said, you know, Mom, I really want seven pieces of cake. You know, you're, you're going to say, no, you can't eat seven pieces of cake. And the child is probably going to interpret that as, well, my mom doesn't love me, right? Of course, we know the opposite is true. You're keeping her from eating seven pieces of cake exactly because you do love her. And you know that tomorrow morning if she eats seven pieces of cake, she is going to wake up and be really, really sick. You know what is good for your child. And in the same way, God actually knows what is good for us. He loves us. He cares for us. There is no storehouse of evil with him. He only has good things to give. And so when we demand the wrong things, what is a good father to do? He withholds them. And he goes to work on our hearts so that they might be shaped to ask for the right things. Let me close with this story. Uh, some of you know my friend Paul Miller, who, uh, who used to be an RUF campus minister in Corpus Christi, and he tells this great story about, um, about his first days on campus. This is, he's starting the, the, the campus ministry there at this, um, at this university, and the goal, of course, is to go and meet students and gather them together and, you know, start a Bible study, start a group to gather to, to teach them of the gospel, to reach them with the gospel, and equip them to serve their neighbors as well. So Paul gets to campus, it's the first day, he's nervous, he's not sure what to do, he doesn't know anybody on the campus, and he, um, he gets himself ready, takes a shower, he shaves, he looks in the mirror, he gives himself that Stuart Smalley, you know, pep talk, you're good enough, you're smart enough, and doggone it, people like you, and he, heads, he gets in his car and he heads to campus, and he walks on campus, parks his car, walks into campus, and he's going to go into like the commons area where everybody kind of hangs out. And he goes in there and he opens the door and he walks in and there's just this crowd of kids. <laughs> and he just immediately panics. He doesn't know what to do. So he said, so he closed the door. He said, I got back in my car, drove home, poured a stiff drink and took a nap. <laughs> and fortunately, the next day, <laughs> got up and did the same thing. Uh, gave himself the pep talk, got in his car, drove to, to campus, walked over to the commons, this time ready, you know, to go up and talk to somebody. And as he walked in, there's a table full of, of, of college girls right here. And he walked in and he just said, hey, my name's Paul. I'm starting a campus ministry. And one of the girls said, are you Paul Miller with RUF? Because we've been waiting for you. And these are five of my friends. We would really love for you to teach us a Bible study. How great is that? It's such a good reminder. The reason I tell you that story is because it's such a good reminder that even though Jesus says, hey, come and ask, and, pl and please come and seek, and please come and knock, is that very oftentimes God, in his wonderful, loving character, he actually gives before we ask. He comes and finds us before we seek him. He opens the door before we even knock. 
because that's who he is. Friends, the character of God and the way that he has made you one of his own if you belong to Christ and the wisdom of God and his wonderful giving of good gifts, that is the foundation for our prayer life. It is the reason that we can come and present ourselves to him honestly. It's the reason why we can even ask for things because we have the confidence that our God is good. Let's pray for that now. Our Father in heaven, we're thankful for, uh, just for this teaching of Jesus because it's hard for us. It's hard for me to ask for, for things. Um, I'm often saddled with shame or I'm fearful of what the answer might be or I'm fearful of what the answer might mean or I just decide I don't want to because I don't want to carve out the time or I don't want to put myself in a risky position. Lord, will you heal those things in my heart and heal them in all of our hearts today that we might come and draw near to you to understand your character in deeper ways, that we might ask you, that we might come and seek you, that we might knock, and in doing so, Lord, that we might gain access to be with you. We pray that all in the name of Jesus. Amen.